Uh, before we get into it, the first thing I want to say is, you know, uh, Lee does a show. It's called Redacted Tonight on Russia Today. Um, a lot of people might not be familiar with Russia Today. I love the network. Um, you know, when you hear Russia Today, some people probably automatically think propaganda. You know, you hear you hear the word Russia in there. But I when you that's wa- probably why they changed it to RT. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I follow your show, and I used to follow Abby Martin, um, and I don't agree with everything I hear on Russia Today, but one thing I love about Russia Today is that you guys talk about what's going on overseas as far as the wars, and it seems like CNN and Fox and the rest of them, they forgot we're even at war, and I love that you guys bring that truth. Um, yeah, it, I mean, you know, that's, that's part of the reason I'm I'm on RT, and... and I, I, you know, one thing that I think is important to note is RT is not a monolith. You know, they've got a lot of different shows saying a lot of different things. Uh, the Chris Hedges, Jesse Ventura, they also, uh, I think, have a couple of libertarians on the network. So we're not all one voice. And I know I can only speak for myself. I've never been told what to say. I've never been told how to say it. I've never been told I can't say anything. And and that's why I'm on RT is because I you know I've been doing the same thing for 20 years as stand, political stand-up comedy, and uh, I'd kind of given up the idea of of actually having a TV show because I knew these ideas aren't really like you're saying aren't really allowed on right. on our mainstream networks. There you you can't if you talk about the, our wars overseas you kind of give them a little head nod and then you move on to the to the next uh, Donald Trump tweet that just came out. Right, exactly. And that's not really what I ever wanted to do, so uh, I I happened to end up on the network that actually lets me speak my mind and and uh, talk about, you know, this, this uh, cataclysmic uh, dystopian future we seem to be arriving at. Right, right. Yeah, you, you actually answered the first question I wanted to ask is, you know, do they give you any instructions or tell you anything that you're not allowed to talk about? Like, for example, do they say anything about Putin? Are you allowed to comment on Putin in any way you want? Yeah, I've never been told to say anything uh, or instructed to say anything or not say anything, and I've had jokes on the show about Putin. And, you know, I, I, I think people are like, well, you know, the fact that he's not uh, talking about Russia 24-7 means that he must be instructed on what to say. But the truth is, uh, my show's called Redacted Tonight for a reason. I want to cover the things that aren't being covered on your mainstream media. Mm -hmm. And if you want xenophobic, neo-McCarthyist trashing of Russia 24-7, well, guess what? You can get that on every other channel. So uh, (laughs) good good journey. (laughs) I wish you well. Right, right. So one thing you said is, you know, you, you started as a comic. Um, you're, you're a comic first. Now, like a lot of comics, you know, Bill Maher and these guys, they, they end up in the political commentating world with, with night shows, Jimmy Fallon, you know, a bunch of them. Do you still consider yourself number one to be a comic or do you consider yourself a, a pundit? Yeah, no, I still view myself as a comedian, and, and, you know, that's what, in my life, that's what came first as well. I suppose there might be others out there where that came second. They were like, oh, I can keep talking about politics and make some jokes in here, but uh, I wanted to be a comedy writer starting at the age of 12, and then I decided I wanted to be a stand-up comic at 17, and and uh, I've been doing that ever since, you know. I I'd spent all those years, uh, you know, for 15 years basically until I started the TV show, uh, grinding it out in New York, touring the country, touring the U.K., just night after night. I Even in the early years when I was 22, 23, I was doing three spots a night at various comedy clubs in New York, and that's that's all it was, you know, it was run around and try and make people laugh. And, and then I started wanting, you know, to put more interesting stuff into my stand-up, so it became more and more political. And, 
and uh, that's kind of, it. Kind of went from there, but yeah, I, I consider myself a comedian. Yeah, yeah, I consider you a comedian too. A, you know, a smart one with a, with a good show. <laughs> but um, yeah, to be to be a comic, uh, I gave it a go for like three months. Uh, a lot of people think they're funny, and to <laughs> be months, so yeah, it's yeah. A, extreme devotion. Exactly, that's what I'm going to say. To be a comic, you got to love it above all other things because it's it's rough going in the beginning. You bomb a little bit. You can't get gigs. You're not making any money. I mean, you got to, How long did it take you until you were making money as a comic, one way or another? Yeah, well, I, exactly, and that's and that's why it's. I'm always amazed with people that kind of start later in life, and by later I just mean after you know 25 or something. Right. Because I was lucky in that I was so young, I was willing to take every awful spot. You you know you're on a, a, a one inch high stage, standing in the middle of a bar somewhere with a redneck going, "Why aren't you fucking singing a song?" <laughs> like you got you got to be ready for that. And I was young enough, and and yeah, I, I really did love it. I loved bringing my comedic ideas onto a stage and and uh yeah just uh, you know grind like i said grinding it out i got lucky in in i mean i i was definitely i was very broke in new york for a couple of years i was i gave myself a 100 dollar a week food budget and you know i was wow. eating, uh, for for dinner many nights i had a piece of bologna on a piece of bread in new york and i i rented actually one half of a bunk bed in new york city well, so one- i was uh, <laughs> So I, I was one of the bunks, and I, I that was seven hundred dollars a month. Oh my god! Um, but uh, and you know that's how I started. But I got lucky in that two years in, uh, I I you know a combination of luck and being ready for when luck opened the door. I was performed at a uh, a college booking event called NACA, where colleges come and decide what uh, performers they want to bring to their schools. And I had a really great set, which means I booked like 80 colleges for the upcoming year. And uh, colleges pay a lot better than a comedy club does. So, sure. you know, the following, the following five to six years, I played something like 600 colleges. Oh, wow. Did you say in the following year? following uh five six years okay that makes that makes more sense okay sure yeah, so it, it averaged it averaged out to between 80 and 100 colleges a year wow man that's wild really t- you know tons of days on the road yeah that's incredible so all right turning a little bit towards towards politics um we're kind of learning today biden is probably getting in and um i remember during the the last campaign with hillary and bernie you were one of the only voices i heard out there on the liberal side that was being critical at all of the Hillary campaign and the corruption in the Democratic Party. And I'm just wondering, has anything changed? Or are the Democrats going to do their best to give us just another pro-war candidate? Oh, my God. I mean, like, ideas have changed. And I think the fact that you have, like, uh, Elizabeth Warren talking about breaking up Google and various things like that, like, that's a slight change from the from the stuff that was put forward a few years ago. But other than that, everything is exactly the same in terms of how to rig these primaries, how to make sure a corporate candidate, I mean, an anti-corporate candidate does not get through. And the only thing they've changed, which they claimed was a big deal, was getting rid of two-thirds of superdelegates. But the problem is they didn't actually get rid of them. They got rid of them on on the first ballot, which means... When you get to the convention, if they decide they really want to stop, let's say, Bernie Sanders from getting the nomination, they push it to a second vote, and all those superdelegates are back in there. Oh, no kidding? So, so they didn't get rid of anything? Yeah. yeah. They just... Yeah. Oh, so they, man. All they did was push it to the second ballot. And Pulling a little switcheroo. Super, 
Yeah, a third of the superdelegates are still involved in the first ballot. On top of that, they added something that makes it even harder for, like, a Bernie Sanders. They added a loyalty oath that basically the head of the DNC can decide at any time, at any point in the primary process, that a candidate is not Democratic enough and just void them from the process. So they could notice that Bernie Sanders is winning this primary, and they could just, the DNC could just say, hey, we've decided Bernie Sanders is not a true Democrat, he's out. Wow, that that makes sense from what I've heard from Bernie recently. I've, I've heard him in an interview, and they were asking him, why is, is he really a Democrat? Isn't he a socialist? And he was hitting that Democrat line pretty hard. I guess that's why. Yeah, I mean that that's part of it and and you know the the fact that they act like uh this the the last election was uh rigged in a bunch of ways and meanwhile we vote on the same unaccountable unverified black box voting machines owned by a couple the code is owned by a few corporations the exit polls are all done by one corporation that has stated publicly that they make the exit polls fit with the machine results which are not exit polls that's a fake exit poll a real exit wow. poll is something that you hold up against the machine results and see if it matches. Right. So we have, you know, in, in a large Harvard study found we have one of the, uh, we have the worst election system in the Western world, and it, we've done nothing to try and remedy that, to fix it, and I, I foresee nothing different in this primary. It's going to be the same old uh, uh, tricks and scams, and, and in, in a court case a year ago, the DNC said in court that they have the right to rig the election, uh, the primaries, and that they have no obligation to Democrats to give them a legitimate primary process. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, you know, it, it bothers me, uh, what was it, like 15 years ago, Ron Paul came along and they and, and both parties just pretended basically like he didn't exist, even though he was polling at like 15%. Last time they yeah. gave it to Bernie. And now this time you got a candidate like Tulsi Gabbard, who I, I really like, mostly because of her uh-huh. anti-war message. And they're doing the same thing. They just pretend she does not exist. They, I heard CNN run down a list of how wonderful it is all these women candidates are in, and they named every single candidate by name except Tulsi. So it just, it just yeah, shows they're just doing the same tricks. Well, yeah, same tricks. Ignore her on the polls. They did the same thing to Bernie. They would like try and leave him out of polls in the early running and stuff like that. Um, and and later in the running, when they couldn't ignore him anymore, CNN would do polls where they, if you looked in the actual, you know, because they reveal how they did the polling, they wouldn't poll anyone from 18 to 25 because that was Bernie's biggest demographic. So they'd only poll older voters to make it look like Hillary was winning. And and yeah, they're doing that to Tulsi Gabbard because she's anti war and she's uh you know bernie has only done a couple of comments about the military industrial complex where yeah. tulsi gabbard has been front and center about uh ending this ridiculous endless war our thousand military bases around the world trillions of dollars just go into a black hole and you never even know where they where they end up uh and she has actually talked about this and our regime change efforts and so she really does scare the the ruling elite and that's why you're seeing them yeah use those same methods that they used against Bernie last time against her. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, uh, Bernie's really toned that rhetoric down. And you know, one thing uh, going back to, to Donald Trump is I didn't vote for him. I, I definitely didn't want him to become president. But the singular hope I had about him is he was talking that way about the war, like it's a waste of money. What are we doing there? And in, in its most recent uh, State of the Union, he stated that we can't fight endless wars. But really, nothing's changed. So you got to wonder if he was being sincere at all, or if they just got to him. 
Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, I think most of it is rather insincere. He just saw that it was a good talking point that got that got his fan base uh, excited to not have endless wars, and and he'd been critical of like Obama's wars back before he was running for office, and everything. But you're right that every every step Trump has taken, and and granted, I think he's a, a narcissistic megalomaniac. Well, he soon, is. <laughs> but but every step he's taken to try and create peace such as North Korea, such as saying we were pulling the troops out of Syria, the entirety, and I mean entirety, of our mainstream media, our Congress, uh, the generals he's surrounded by, come down hard and say, they sure you know, do. basically, how dare you try and create peace with any country? Now, within nine days of him saying he was going to pull troops out of Syria, they had him bombing Syria. Right. Like, it is it's amazing. Honestly, the moment the moment someone threatens peace with another country mm-hmm. that is one of our one of our uh, known enemies or de, you know decided enemies, then th- th- honestly, the entire uh, uh, establishment just freaks the fuck out. Yeah, and uh, and and a mainstream media then start pushing all these crazy stories. It's like, oh, North Korea is starting this nuclear reactor. This nuclear reactor, really? They just started that the day Trump said he wants to create peace. Right. That is odd. That that suddenly happened, you know, it's it's insane. Well, it's not really odd when you understand the military-industrial complex. It just it it makes sense that that's how it played out. I mean, when he made his Syria comments, that's really the singular about pulling out. That's about the singular thing in the last two years that has united both the left and the right. Both of them are coming out against him. That's the first time I've seen that in two years. Yep, and uh, and they also pretty quickly after he got into office. And granted, I didn't like who he was surrounding himself back then either. But they pretty quickly somehow managed to surround him with uh, generals and former generals. I mean, his chief of staff was a general, General Mattis, in there, and it was like and McMaster, and it's like how did, how did he suddenly end up surrounded by military generals telling him what to do? It was so bizarre. This is the supposed you know anti-establishment. Uh, Rethinking candidate, and he surrounds himself with generals. All establishment, yeah, yeah. Preposterous. And something else I've been talking about that's gotten zero coverage for obvious reasons is uh, the twenty-one trillion that's gone unaccounted for at the Pentagon over the past twenty years. Uh, it, it, there's been ar- there was one article in Forbes, and then one article. In Did the you Nation. say twenty-one trillion? Trillion with a T. The, oh my God, that's our whole deficit. Uh, yeah, that's that's far more. I mean, to, get, to put in perspective, the UK's GDP is two point something trillion a year. So, so where to go? It's a it's an insane amount of money and unaccounted for adjustments. And uh, and it's been these are by their own reports. These are by the Pentagon's uh, Government of Accountability Office, their own reports. So this isn't somebody else saying this. This is their reports. The Inspector General at the Pentagon. And, uh, you know, they, of course, deny that it means anything, but um, they failed their their only audit they've ever had. They failed back in November. And uh, they uh, they uh, it, it's totally insane. And there's been a thousand over a thousand whistleblowers have come forward at the Pentagon. Again, this is according to their own government accountability office reports. A thousand whistleblowers that have been ignored over the past like three years. Yeah, that seems pretty obvious. I mean, look, my accountant only charges like four hundred dollars an hour. I'm pretty sure he could find that twenty-one trillion. I don't think they're trying too hard. I think they know exactly where it is. I don't think it's missing. I love the I love the idea that they were supposedly legally obligated to have an audit every year since 1996. They've never done it. They finally do it, and then they just quietly go, "Oh yeah, we failed," and that's all. That's all we learned. 
Well, you know, when we fail an audit, people go to jail. Why, why is yeah. that not the case with them? Exactly. So, all right, I want to I switch it up a little bit because uh, I've heard you this week talking about the Ilhan Omar, so I want to bring up that story. So I have a couple perspectives on this, and I want to get your take. Um, I despise identity politics. They, they drive me nuts. I think it's one of the things that's tearing this country apart, and every story now gets reported through an identity you know, lens. Um, what dri- I don't think what she said was anti-Semitic, not at all, but what drives me crazy about this story is the hypocrisy we see on both sides. The, the left is being hypocritical here because if this type of thing was said by, let's say, Trump, they'd be all over him. And the right is being hypocritical because they're, they're going after her hard and they don't do it on their people. So I think that's the very crux of the problem with identity politics is it puts people into camps where they're on teams, where they're, they're rooting for their own guys, and we're not just looking at everything objectively. So how do you feel about this whole story? I mean, I, I think I agree with you, although it depends on what you mean by left and right. The, the, the supposed left, as in the Democrats, have gone after her mercilessly over this because they are all bought out by Israel, well, really by APAC uh, as well. And I, I did a segment about this on Redacted Tonight, and I am Jewish by birth but atheist by choice. Um, but what she said was not anti-Semitic. It was no, it really talking wasn't. about the power the power of APAC and how much lobbyist money plays into these games. And she's absolutely right. And most, and, and you see why most Congress people are so terrified to bring it up because she has been, uh, you know, torn limb from limb by both the Democrats and Republicans, all but 28 uh, voted for this latest bill or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, like, I, I think that it's, it's, you know, it really does come down to the money. And there's a great definitely comes down to money. Definitely. There was a great there was a great documentary that uh, that was created. It was it was made by Al Jazeera. They got an undercover person into uh, these various Israel lobbies uh, to see the truth of what's going on in there, and and everything I'm saying is verified in those undercover videos. But it th- then there was so much pressure on Al Jazeera not to release it that they ultimately suppressed it and didn't release it. But it then was leaked out. So like a month ago, it was leaked out. It's called the lobby. And you can go and watch it online now, and it shows undercover video of these lobbyists saying, look, we control all of Congress via money, via donations. Uh, we, if a congressman says something against us, we attack them in the Washington Post. Yeah, they do that. Yeah, they do that, and they, and they admit to it. But, I mean, what, that's not really much different than what BDS is doing on, on the other side for – is it? I mean, aren't they both kind of doing the same thing? Just lobbying, one's lobbying for the Islamic and one's lobbying for the, the Jewish state. Which lobby was the one you mentioned? BDS, Boycott, Divest, Sanctions, oh, oh, yeah, everybody Divest and Sanctions. Uh, well, no, because one of them is hugely powerful and can afford to uh, give millions and millions of dollars of donations and also for, afford to fund uh, competing candidates to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. The other one, BDS, saying let's uh, you know boycott um, companies that do business in, in Israel until such time as they stop the apartheid state with Palestine, that's 
a that's a gra- that's a grassroots uprising. That's okay. people with no money. So you're saying they don't have money to support just, candidates or go after candidates. They're a smaller Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and bo- and and let's not forget boycotting is not an offensive thing. Of course that's not. Our country's founded on it. Remember the Boston Yeah, party? absolutely. Like, sure. Bo- boycotting is freedom of speech. So I I think one of them is I, I think BDS is is fine and is a form of activism. Um but in, in, in terms of identity politics, I, I agree, I'd say probably 75% with what you're saying. I do think that we can't use the kind of hatred of identity politics or, or how annoying it is to then ignore, like, racism in our country. No. We have a hugely racist history and, you know, uh, systemic racism and a lot of... Okay, speaking, speaking of systemic... Speaking of systemic racism, because yeah, I, I I don't like identity politics, but speaking of s- systemic racism, let's let's go to the drug war, right? The war on drugs. There's no there's okay. nowhere else in our country right now where there's such systemic racism as there is in the war on drugs. So as much as the left talks about identity politics, why is this not like near the very top of their list is decriminalization of, of all drugs and prostitution. Why is that not near the very top? That, As far as I can see, that's the most racist thing that's still going on in this country. Because there is no left in Congress anymore. There is, you know, what, four or five people maybe? Well, when I say so, the left, I'm not talking about Congress. I'm talking about... The, the movement on the left. You don't hear a whole lot of chatter well, well, about that. Well, right. So when you say there, when you say why isn't it a top priority of the left, I kind of figured you meant Democrats. No. If you mean if you mean left of those people in Congress, I think it is a priority. I mean, I talk with a lot of people about how racist the drug wars are, but I think Congress is made up of Republicans and Republican lights, and uh, it's it, so that's why you know they are corporate talking heads on both sides, and they're not going to actually care about the drug war because they, you know, they support the uh, extraction of wealth to a tiny percentage of individuals, so therefore they support the police state. They all seem to support unlimited surveillance uh, that has been exposed on all American citizens. Um, you know, they're, they're not really standing up against any of it except for, what, you know, six congressmen and women. Right. Yeah, and again, going back to identity politics, like, you you just pointed out you you call them Republicans and Republican light whatever the point is they're not much different than each other on the the matters that count like war right. um, so I think they focus on identity politics because it's a great way for them to yeah. uh, drum up their their voting base it's just it's just raising hysteria and getting people to the polls and that's another reason I don't like it like if we could get rid of that and actually just talk about the issues then people might see that they're not so different from one another, and you know maybe we get a third party in there. Yeah, you're you're right that they use these uh, these wedge issues to act like they, these parties are so different when they're not. They, like you just said, they agree on ninety percent of the core issues of the country, whether it be Wall Street, whether it be environmental destruction. Even though Democrats will give some lip service to it, they don't actually care. Right. Uh, whether it be uh, our endless foreign wars you know, prison industrial complex, it all just keeps mowing along, you know, moving along like some massive machine, and they're not going to basically talk about any of that, and then they're going to get you all upset because of an anti-Semitic uh, comment. Right. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, you, you mentioned Wall Street, so that, that makes me think back to Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, you, were, you were kind of a part of that. Um, you supported it, but the the movement it didn't really accomplish much. It it died, and then it's it's kind of having a rebirth now, although not under that name. But I think Bernie Sanders kind of brought back all that with the one percent. 
Um, given that no changes were made, nothing significant anyway, in your, in your opinion, are we not due for like another financial collapse, like a repeat of what we saw in 2008? Well, we are absolutely due, but let me go back and disagree with you on Occupy not accomplishing anything. I actually think that, you know, these are wars of ideas, and I think that when you have a small group of grassroots activists going up against the most powerful financial interests the world have ever seen, uh, I think it's not a surprise that they didn't, you know, what, bring down Congress or bring down Wall Street or anything. However, the ideas have continued to echo throughout our culture and throughout our society. I don't think you would see a Bernie Sanders movement at all without Occupy kind of laying the groundwork. I don't think you'd see uh, a lot of the things that have gone on, uh, whether it be health care or whether it be, uh, you know, some of the mass surveillance stuff as well was kind of connected to Occupy. So uh, people talking about it, I mean. So I actually think it was hugely influential in, in a lot of ways, but I hear what you're saying about, you know, no, it's not like Wall Street was reined yeah. in after Occupy. Um, you make it, you make a good yeah, point you know, that I, I said Bernie brought it back with a rebirth, but you're probably right. There might not have been a Bernie without the Occupy movement first. So, yeah, yeah chicken and, or the egg. And, 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 yeah, and people continue, you know, right-wing or left-wing, people continue to talk about these ideas about the 99%, about the extraction of the wealth. I mean, if you take away the labels and you don't label someone Republican or, or Democrat and you just say, hey, do you think your minimum wage is too low? Most are going to say yes. And, and why is, the, why is so, so much wealth in the hands of a tiny number of people? Most people agree with this stuff. They're just told to label themselves in a certain way and hate the other side. And, uh, and uh, what was I about to say? Oh, the, the upcoming crisis. So here's the thing. is It's not just me that thinks there's a crisis coming. It's Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase and the other big financial banks, the largest uh, you know, uh, bank entities in, in our country, have said there will be a crisis in the next two years. So even they know that there is something serious on the horizon. We have debt uh, to the level that we had with the uh, with the mortgages. Well, sounds like the Pentagon has it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, student debt and auto loan debt are now almost the levels of the mortgage crisis. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely think, you know, 61% of the country say that they cannot afford a $1,000 emergency. And you you just can't, uh, you know, our economic system is set up, like, if you want to view how it's set up, just picture Chris Christie riding on the shoulders of Natalie Portman. Like, <laughs> that's how we have it set up right now. I, I pictured that. Uh, I wish I hadn't. Um, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're due for it. Um, so, um, let's, let's, let's move on. I know, I know, uh, you record your show tonight, right? So you're, you're pressed for time. I just got a couple more questions for you. I wanted to get out. Um, the Green New Deal. Now, um, this is raising a big stink on, on both sides. I, I'm, I have the uh, climate up there in my list of priorities, um, for, you know, what I look for in a candidate, but this Green New Deal just, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, you're, you're a supporter of it and I'd just like you to, to tell me why. Well, I want to ask you what doesn't make sense, but before that, let me say that I think the, uh, the, the version that was put forward to the, by the Democrats is completely watered down. I mean, it was taken from the Green Party and then it was basically corporatized and now they've put forward something that doesn't actually have a lot of teeth in it and is kind of meaningless and, and I, I support the ideas of it, but I don't actually think the Democrat version could do much. But uh, what is it you don't like? Well, I just, it, it wants to get, have us 100% off of fossil fuels within a decade. Um, 
even if that was possible, I don't know if it is. I, I don't see how our e- economy would survive that kind of shift. I mean, our economy is pretty much 100% dependent on that right now, all facets of it. Well, I, I, I know. I, I challenge you and I challenge basically everyone to uh, think in a new way because we're all going to die. Like it, nah. the, the IPCC says the point of return is the point of no return is in 11 years, not meaning we all die in 11 years. But after that point, if we haven't changed things uh, radically, we are there's nothing we can do to fix them. Yeah. So basically, we have we have 11 years to change everything. And if we're running around going, yeah, but the economy it might hurt the economy. Well, then we'll just die saying, yeah, but it's going to hurt the economy. So you're saying and, it might hurt the economy, but we we got to do it anyway. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I I don't know whether it would or not, but I'll tell you what'll really hurt the economy. Sure. Is, uh, extinction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Extinction's <laughs> gonna fucking fuck up the comedy. It sure will. So much. And 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 that's the other thing. I I hate when people say, oh, but you know, this is. Uh, they say. Like, well, think of how much it'll cost to make this shift. And it's like, do you have any idea how much severe climate change? I don't mean what we're already going through. I mean, severe climate change will cost like trillions and trillions of dollars. It's unfathomable. So the idea that it's going to cost money is really laughable. Well, I don't. I don't mean necessarily the the cost to to change the way that we do things. I just mean our economy. Like every, you know, all the trucks run on on oil. I, everything. It's so integrated into our society. But you make a good point. Extinction would be more expensive. But what what I want to come to you with is you threw out that number eleven years, right? And maybe that's the truth. I don't know. I'm not. I, I tend to believe the scientists. I try not to question them. And I because I'm a dummy compared to them. So if they tell me it's eleven years, it's eleven years. Okay, I get it. But I think where a lot of people are coming from is. 12, 15 years ago, whenever it was where, where uh, when um, that documentary came out from Gore, they gave us a similar timeline. And we've crossed that date, and now we're being told it's a different timeline. So I think a lot of people well, don't trust when they hear 11 years, we're all doomed. Uh- a few things. I wouldn't. I wouldn't use Gore as the be all and end all. I mean, you know, he is a corporate politician. But uh, so I don't know what I don't know exactly what his movie said. I think, as I recall, I think they were talking about keeping it below two degrees because they knew that two degrees. Yeah, two degrees. Extreme extreme issues. Yeah, so we have passed that line. Right. We cannot stop before two degrees. So now they've shifted the goalposts, and now it's not stopping it before two degrees. It's stopping it before a runaway, uh, catastrophic heating up of the climate that we just can't stop at all. So I think they've moved the goalpost, and that's probably what the different time frames are. Um, but yeah, the, you know, this is not, this is not one guy like Gore. This is, uh, just about every scientist that is, has been peer reviewed. Uh, and, and, you know, people run around and they say, uh, 99% of scientists, uh, agree or 97% or something agree on this. And, uh, you know, uh, they actually studied how many scientists do agree on, uh, man-made climate change. And in terms of peer-reviewed actual scientific articles, it's not 99%. It's 99.7%. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I have, I have a lot of friends and family who, who think it's a hoax and whatever. And what I always say to them is, you know, we don't know, you know, we, we don't know. We're not smart enough to know this. If the scientists say it, like, don't you just want to play on the, the side of caution? If 99% of them are saying it's going to wipe us out, like, shouldn't we just be cautious about it? Like, what's the worst possible scenario with going along with right. what they say? You know, but yeah, there's a great there's a great political cartoon of a guy standing up, I guess, at the climate 
meeting or whatever, and he says, but wait, what if we create a better, more sustainable world for nothing? <laughs> <laughs> so it really is like, what, what are, you know, and, and now we're seeing the effects, you know, we're seeing, and, and you know, everybody likes to, those who want to deny it say, oh, well, the fires in, that fire in California was uh, by the electric company or whatever. It's not one fire. There were hundreds of fires all across California yep. and a number that has never before been seen. Right. And, and guess what? I looked it up and there's articles from last year saying that year had a number that had never before been Well, I, I live here, and it's been worse every single year. And now it's been raining every day for a month, and it, it never rains here. So just wacky shit is going on, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, I just, I just wanted to ask one, one last question. Um, so I remember uh, a decade ago after the financial crash, the Tea Party came about, and the Republican Party had a little internal struggle, and the Tea Party mm. mostly kicked out a lot of the, the centrists at that time. It seems the the left is going through the same thing right now. You got a lot of, uh, I call them the SJW left coming into power and they're trying to kick out the the mainstay Democrats. Basically, the party's having a little internal war. Um, the parties are both um, getting more drastic on both sides while at the same time in Congress, they're basically staying the same. Are we ever going to get to a point where Congress can work together and get some stuff accomplished when when the the left and right arms of the constituency are getting all the making all the noise and causing so much chaos in their parties? Well, I I see what you're saying, but the truth is, out of all of the discussion of anti-corporate, you call them SJW, but I prefer like to to care about their anti-corporate stances. You know, I wish like, they were. I'm anti. I'm I'm a little bit anti-corporate. It doesn't feel that way. Well, the well, the standing up against. I, I'm only talking about a couple of people, by the way. Uh, the, the standing up against APAC and the lobbyist money and things like that are are a significant uh, a significant stance. But if you look at the actual numbers that got elected into Congress, the actual number of farther left anti-corporate candidates was five, maybe, and. Of the ones that weren't that went unopposed or were not or or were elected in a district that already had a far left candidate, uh, already had a far left congressperson, it's two. So basically, yeah. two not a is lot. The number that actually that actually upended the corporate kind of uh, consolidated power of the Democrats. So it is a tiny number, but they're getting all of the media play because people care about these issues. Like people right, that's what I'm saying. They get a lot of media play. Yeah. Yeah, they get a lot of media pay because because a lot of Americans give a lot of a shit about these issues, and our corporate Congress does not. Like do you think that's why they anything. get? Do you think that's why they get the media play, or do you think it's like the same reason Trump used to get it was because he was saying the the loudest, dumbest things, and it was entertaining to people? Do you think people care about these issues, or is it just because they're making the most noise? I mean, I, I, I don't think Ocasio-Cortez is saying dumb things. I, I think, yes, Trump's an entertainer, but he was also, like you said earlier, saying things that a lot of Americans agree with, such as uh, pulling back on our endless wars around the world. Right. So there were several things about him that, that got people talking. Um, and but, I, but my point is just that even if... Uh, you know, we're talking about a few, a handful of people that are actually saying the farther left stuff. The truth is Congress largely, 90-some percent, agree. they do work together. They agree on a lot of things. 
And that stuff is all pro-corporate destruction of the average human being. Murder, murder, murder. Studies, large Princeton studies have have shown that if Congress wants to, if, if Congress passes something. Almost always, it's because corporations agree with it. So even with the health care bill, they found a way for corporate interests to agree with the health care bill. Oh, yeah. So I work in health care. The insurance companies loved it. I mean, they loved yeah, it by the, the time it was done. Insurance companies jumped up and down. So that's just an example of how, like, the things Americans want that don't align with corporate interests do not happen in our Congress, like almost ever. Right. Like, I challenge people to come up with one that Congress did that didn't align with corporate America. So we don't have a, a Congress that is listening to the people now in any way. Yeah. We got to tear this motherfucker down, Lee. That's what we got to do. And if, if global warming gets us first, I got a canoe. You're welcome aboard. Uh, we'll be all right. But uh, hey, yeah, thanks so much for your time. Um, I love the show. Everybody, listeners, check out Redacted Tonight. It's a great show, a different perspective than you're going to get anywhere else. Uh, Lee, do you want to promote anything else? Uh, Yeah, I got a new stand-up comedy special uh, called Not Allowed on American TV, and it's only at LeeCampComedySpecial.com. Uh, it's, you know, you know, it's it, for those who like stand-up comedy, who enjoyed, uh, you know, Bill Hicks or George Carlin, it's got some of that style in it. Love it. And, uh, they are inspirations. They were amazing, uh, comedians. And anyway, if you like that kind of stuff, LeeCampComedySpecial.com. I'm also at Lee Camp on Twitter. All right. Check it out, people. I'll watch it tonight. Thanks again, man. Take care. Thanks a lot. Yeah.